0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Greetings and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. Or you could also be listening on the Radio Player Canada app anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM, or 95.7 E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and follow the directions. You could be listening on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right across the country. Uh, That might come in handy if perhaps you know someone outside of our listening area that might want to listen in, or perhaps catch one of our uh, interviews that we've done uh, that has been aired, because it then goes up to our SoundCloud and also our website. You can listen to that anytime you like. Yeah, it takes a day or two to get up there. Today on the show, my first guest, Eric Armstrong. He's an associate professor in the Department of Theater at York University, which is my old school. Not only is it my old school, it's my old Department of uh, Study as well. Wonderful. I studied theater at York University. Did you? I did, and uh, I, I think one professor, maybe more, might still be there. Peter McKinnon is he still still teaching? He a just retired, he but did. he
1: he is coming in and teaching. Um, Classes, uh-huh. you know, there's a class called Visge, uh, okay. where students in the design area look mm. at uh, the history of world cultures, mm. and they look at the history of visual sources mm. for their design work. And right. Peter comes and teaches that for us.
0: You know, Peter, uh, I always remember one line that Peter said to us in in lighting class. I took I, I took two years in in uh, performance and two years in in the design area. Great. And I remember uh, at one point uh he was giving us uh some instruction about lighting and you know uh proscenium theaters and you know and and one of the students said something about you know you want you know, to oh but i can see that light up there it's like it was what peter said you know or this student said i can see that light up there and and peter turned to the student and said well if you have people looking at your lighting <laughs> you've got bigger issues <laughs> to worry about <laughs> absolutely. I always absolutely. remember that. I use that in different ways when I'm talking to people about things that they, they're pointing out and I'm going, yeah, well, if that's the case, you got bigger issues to worry yes, about. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, it's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Now, uh, you are uh, here to talk about something that is pretty interesting, I think. I hadn't really thought about this uh, angle, and I guess it's something that's relatively new, and I guess you uh, took it took uh, upon yourself to look into this, and that is the accent's for indigenous actors and indigenous actors that are going into the profession that need to learn accents for their profession.
1: Yeah, I teach accents as Mm -hmm. part of the voice curriculum. So I teach things like breath and making sounds and articulation, all sorts of stuff, Shakespeare text. Mm. Um, But one aspect of the training that all actors go through is learning accents. Mm -hmm. And so there Historically, it's been very much dominated by European accents, and Absolutely. all actors, regardless of their background, historically were put through their paces with the same old accents. Things like Irish and Scottish and British received pronunciation. Mm. And um, that, as our s- classes became more and more diverse, mm. those old crusty gems of accents became less and less appropriate for everyone. Mm. Now... You know, those communities, Ireland has a very diverse population as well, Mm -hmm. right? There are lots of people of color in Ireland. But the fact of the matter is that a lot of people of color don't get cast in Irish plays. And so the reality became that I needed to um, take care of my students a little bit better. And and I, as a teacher, needed to be equipped to handle the accents that they felt that they were going to need out in the world. So Mm -hmm. that's kind of setting the stage a little bit. Then I had an opportunity to work on a play at Canadian Stage Theatre, and one of the characters was Indigenous. Mm -hmm. The play was set in the Yukon, Mm -hmm. and Ryan Cunningham, who eventually went on to become the artistic director of uh, Native Earth Performing Arts, uh, Ryan was playing this Indigenous role, and I recognized that there really were very limited resources for us to rely on to create the sound of this character. We did some Googling, some research through YouTube, and we came up with something. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I felt a real frustration for Ryan and also for other coaches who would be working with Indigenous actors that there were very few resources. Mm -hmm. And it really got me thinking, I could take it upon myself to create resources. But the fact of the matter is that I feel strongly that the community should be in charge of what's done, how this kind of research should be created. What do you mean by community? So uh, the community of indigenous artists who would be using these accents, Mm -hmm. because ultimately I don't want to create a resource for people to appropriate indigenous accents. Mm -hmm. I want to create a resource for those people who uh, need these accents and it's appropriate for them to use it. And the the fact is that there are a lot of indigenous artists out there already doing indigenous accents. Mm They typically don't get any support to do it, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, historically, an indigenous actor might get hired to work on a film, and they would show up on, uh, at the audition and would be asked to play a role that requires an indigenous accent. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times the actor might be from a very different linguistic background. absolutely. And so what they do, typically, those actors or have done in the past is they either use their own accent as mm. kind of a shortcut, yep. or they use a generalized indigenous accent. And that generalized indigenous accent, I, you know, I, I didn't hear um, participants in the group call it this, but in a way, it reminds me of back in the bad old days, People would teach accents based on these kind of generalizations. So think of sort of like the Lucky Charms Irish accent, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Irish spring commercials back in the day. Mm -hmm. And those kinds of accents ultimately do a great disservice to the community Mm -hmm. they're supposed to represent. Um, And uh, so I think the actors who are forced to make those kinds of choices because they're working on mainstream production where the producers don't really know any different – it's a shortcut for them. Mm. And I totally understand why they would do that. Often their resources are limited. Mm. Time is very limited. Mm. The, the training that they've had is extremely limited because they would be working possibly with someone like myself who feels uncomfortable mm. coaching a person on an accent that mm. they feel it's inappropriate for it to be in my mouth. So how do I coach an actor of color who has a different point of view? So I set out to uh, create a research project with funding from SHRC, the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council, to have a series of focus groups mm. with indigenous performers. Mm-hmm. I was hoping to get some people from uh, a theater, film, television, mm-hmm. and storytelling. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, I failed to get storytellers involved, but mm-hmm. I do think that storytellers are are the kind of people who might want to draw on the idea of using accents. Um, and certainly any resources we end up making in the future could be of use yeah. to those those people. So I, I ended up ultimately running four focus groups with uh, 25 total mm-hmm. performers. Um, some were Métis, mm-hmm. some were First Nations, mm-hmm. uh, some we didn't get any Inuit oh, participants. Really? Oh. And that partly... Uh, has to do with our process of finding people. Mm. We started out with people we knew, our sort of right. affinity network. Sure. And that was primarily uh, former students of mine and mm. their community. Yes. Then we used uh, internet resources. Facebook ultimately is the great glue that holds us all together mm. apparently at this point. <laughs> uh, and a lot of indigenous artists have connections with other indigenous artists sure. through Facebook. Mm-hmm. There was at one time an indigenous actors group that was uh, centered yeah. on the uh, through the web. That has, has since folded, but that did connect me with people. Mm. And so I invited a lot of people. And about three-quarters of the people I invited declined our invitation. Mm. And, you know, I chalk that up primarily to the idea that um, indigenous peoples have been researched to death. Yep. And I think the, there's a real lack of trust, 500 yep. years of lack yeah. of trust. Yep. Building that trust is a difficult thing. So the people who trusted me were often people who knew me. Mm -hmm. Um, But we did manage to get a number of people who who had strong opinions about accent, who had used accent in their work, who really wanted their voice to be heard. So as part of the project, we we started out with two um, face-to-face focus groups, Mm -hmm. one in Winnipeg and one in Toronto, because I'm based in Toronto. My colleague Shannon Vickers at the University of Winnipeg is in is in Winnipeg. Um, and those seemed like a good starting place. But as we continue to try to get people to join us, it became clear that a lot of the artists work all across Canada. They may not be based all across Canada, but theatres all across Canada, film production all across Canada Hires these people, and they are you know traveling around the country, working in a, a lot of different venues yep. and so they they might not they might be from our home base, but they were you know out on the road so in order to get more people to participate, we used a, a, a web technology zoom, which has become quite common. Uh, Right now, particularly with the pandemic going on, people are using these uh, web technologies to bring Mm -hmm. people together. Mm -hmm. And it worked really well for us. We got to have uh, a Mi'kmaq producer Mm -hmm. uh, join us from Halifax. Uh, We had people from the West Coast join us, uh, people from northern Alberta. And that allowed for a much broader spectrum. I I don't know that ultimately the opinions were that different from one another, But uh, it was great to be able to bring more people to the conversation. And we had a range of people from older, more experienced actors, you know, people, headliners in films and television, people like uh, Michael Grayeyes, who who has been a colleague of mine at York University, where he teaches movement and um, devising. But in the recent years, he's been so busy. He's Mm. been on leave from York because he's working all the time. Um, uh, Down to more recent graduates of programs um, and the, the training those people had it was also very diverse. We mm. had people who uh, went through very formal education programs. People uh, with, you know, masters degrees, mm. MFAs or MAs in uh, the U.S., Canada, or abroad. We had people uh, on the other end of the spectrum whose only training was on the job. Sure, that they. Uh, Found themselves doing stunt work, and that because they could speak their language, that opened up to a role where they became actors rather than just stunt performers. Not just stunt performers. I don't want to downplay the importance of mm-hmm. stunt performers, but uh, they they transitioned into performing, and uh, their perspective is very much shaped around their knowledge of their traditional language and the skills that that brings to accent work. So uh, a whole range of different. Um, uh, training that people have gone through. The one uh, area I haven't really mentioned that was very uh, important and perhaps a little bit different than uh, you know more mainstream acting students is that many of our Indigenous performers have specifically Indigenous actor training, um, either through the Centre for Indigenous Theatre here in Toronto or at Dabajamajig on Manitoulin mm-hmm. Island. Mm-hmm. Um, they uh, are, were programs in Vancouver and Winnipeg that are since a little bit less uh, prominent than they once were. Um, so often a, an Indigenous performer will build a, a, an array of training for themselves. Mm-hmm. They might do some standard uh, Western kind of training, uh, some Indigenous kind of training. And there's often a scaffolding. They start out with community-based training opportunities that then they go to a more national indigenous theater training and then perhaps get pushed into a, a more mainstream training opportunity because that might open doors to careers in film and television and, and theater. So uh, w- really the the community of indigenous artists is extremely diverse, of course, uh, and they're, they are uh, not homogenous in their their training backgrounds. Mm. And so thinking about resources means we have to think about all of the different kinds of needs that mm. these different um, uh, artists mm. bring to the table.
0: Now, in your in your initial uh, desire to start this, this was set up to assist indigenous artists learning other indigenous accents. Is that, or, or is it open to you know non indigenous people as well in terms of learning the accents?
1: Well. I really wanted to focus on creating resources for Indigenous artists. But I also recognize that they are often aided by people like myself, accent coaches, trainers, teachers who aren't Indigenous but come to the work with a kind of respectful point of view that they're not going to be teaching everybody this accent. They're going to hold it in a certain kind of respect. There is a a push in... uh, accent training training in higher education, where um, we're trying to move people out of their comfort zone a little bit. Um, Historically, it was like only the people from uh, underrepresented groups could speak the voices of underrepresented accents. Everybody could speak the, uh, you know, those those overrepresented groups. Um, It's easy to take on the language of the oppressor, but... Mm. uh, we can't flip that. right? But there there are some people who've been saying, you know, we need everybody to learn a Jamaican accent mm. in order to allow people to understand how accent works and to make the people for whom that accent is important to give them as much importance and value as these mainstream accents. I'm not sure that I'm there yet. Mm. Uh, there, there's certainly exploration around that. It has to be taught with a very clear idea that if you're going to explore these accents, you're not going to use them uh, for comedic effect or you're going to do them them in a disrespectful way. But the fact of the matter is that in some areas of the world, uh, there are white people, for instance, who speak with a Jamaican accent. Right. A lot of people don't recognize that fact. But if you go to Jamaica, there are many Jamaicans who Mm. are white, who Mm. speak with traditional Jamaican accents. Mm-hmm. So uh, there are perhaps some places where it's more appropriate than others. Mm-hmm. I don't personally think that other than an accent coach, I don't think white students should really be learning indigenous accents. Yeah. But the other thing to that was brought up by our focus groups was that not all indigenous actors are really on board with the idea that any indigenous person can play any indigenous character. Of course. And so the, there are some actors who are sort of in the pan-Indigenous world of, I get hired to do a gig, and I'm playing a Haida character today, and next week I'm going to head to Halifax and play a Mi'kmaq character. One of our uh, uh, participants, who's a very successful actor, uh, he told us in the process of his research that he had had a career of 20 years, And only the week prior to our focus group had he played a character from his own traditional background. So if you want to work in mainstream film and television, Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. reality is the opportunities are such that you have to be able to do this transformative performance. How you do that may depend on... Your own personal politics, sense of morality, if you will, around Mm -hmm. what's appropriate or inappropriate, what feels like appropriation. Um, Some people do that by just doing what they do. They do their own accent, Mm -hmm. and the idea is that an indigenous accent is better than none. Some people do it by transforming, learning the accent, Mm -hmm. and often being required to learn the language, Mm -hmm. even though... Their skill level is such that they are only able to sort of make the sounds of the language. They can barely have a sense of holding what those words mean as they're speaking sounds that to them are pretty close to nonsense syllables. Mm. Um, uh, And the the other extreme is to say, I'm going to speak with a mainstream Canadian accent, Mm. as many indigenous people today do, Mm. and that my accent of English is good enough mm. and that there is no need for this character to transform Right. I think that's especially valid in more contemporary things things that take place in the last 50 years or so right. easily you can do that it's when you start to take on roles that are historical in nature mm. where we confront the fact that well I'm not sure that we even know what indigenous people a hundred years ago would have sounded like when they spoke English. Mm. We may not have recordings of Mm. that. So we may be making a best guess of what that sounds like Mm. or basing it on elders who are fairly elderly. Uh, And so that's the closest approximation to what Mm. that might have sounded like. Um, But frequently the people that uh, are... The, those elders who we're relying on, their command of English is extremely good, mm. and so th- their uh, you know the, their use of English has a fluency that perhaps in a first contact situation, the their use of English would be more like a a pigeon use of language, mm. right? Linguists use this term where we get contact languages coming together. As they come together, they create a pigeon with the d- dominant settler language and the traditional language that was already on the land coming together to create a a language of uh, commerce. And then as a second generation evolves, we we get what's called a Creole, and there's a kind of a mix of the two languages. And some of the languages uh, that uh, uh, we have in Canada are uh, historically Creoles, that there are elements of English in those languages. and sometimes we get sort of decrealization where English is becoming the dominant thing and there's almost no traces other than the accent left. Mm. You know, there there is a reality, I think a linguistic reality, that for some communities where their language is so endangered, we may get to a place where for some communities there are no living speakers of the language. There may be people trying to recreate the language, bring mm-hmm. it back to life, mm-hmm. um, but the, the traces of the language live in the accent. Mm. And that, that accent, that traditional accent, in a way, might wa- we might want to preserve that as a means of hanging on to something of the, of the language that we still have alive today. Right. Um, and also, that accent can inform people who are learning the language without the guidance of traditional elders because they're trying to revive that language so that accent can inform how the language was ultimately spoken in its day.
0: Before you go any further, I just want to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is... Eric uh, Armstrong, rather, and he is uh, the associate and associate professor in the Department of Theater at York University. And we are talking about a very interesting uh, idea and topic. Uh, he does uh, teach uh, 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 accents, uh, part of his uh, work at York University. Uh, and it's a, a new kind of accent, one that hasn't been explored that much and something he was finding that uh, that needed to be addressed, I guess, Interestingly enough, he did do some focus groups. He brought in people to try to uh, see how the the topic of indigenous accents might be approached. Uh, Certainly in this day and age, as you pointed out, uh, uh, Eric, earlier, uh, you you didn't want it to be misappropriated. You wanted to approach this from a very uh, um, uh, um, intelligent way in terms of making sure that uh, people were on board with it. Uh, I'm sure that you found out some very interesting things from talking to people across the country, as you as you mentioned. Um, even the idea, as you also pointed out earlier on, that because of the last 500 years and the mistrust that indigenous people have, just the thought of saying, what do you, you want to take our accents now? <laughs> <laughs> right? Indeed, indeed. Right? Uh, you haven't yeah. taken enough from us already. <laughs> exactly. And
1: so uh, we... Paired with Native Earth Performing Arts mm. to create a place where when we create resources, we could house those resources. So um, that that's kind of the second phase of the research project. The, the first phase was getting this data from the performers that we were working with about what they wanted. Mm. And uh, one of the things that we discussed was the idea of a bank of recordings mm. of people of with course. accents. Sure. And Uh, There are models for this that are available on the internet, one of which probably the most well-known one is a a place called IDEA, the International Dialects of English Archive. I've been involved with that organization since its very beginning. It's now 20 years old, and it has thousands of examples of English from around the world. And those samples are gathered by people like myself Mm. who go out and record people who have accents of English – Those accents come from uh, geographical areas, different cultural groups, Mm. Um, and there are many representative samples. Now, on that site, it's a a site based in the the U.S., so there is one category for um, Native American, Mm. and they have very few samples on that site. Mm -hmm. And part of my thinking was that maybe we would want to create an Indigenous accents of English archive in some way. So this uh, second part of our process was to go out and uh, try to gather some samples. Mm. We asked the people in the focus groups, is that something they wanted? Right. The people who had more traditional mainstream acting backgrounds, who tended to work in mainstream theater and film, their attitude was, definitely, yeah, we want that. Sure. <laughs> um, because we needed, well, in a short order, I need yep. to be able to pick up this accent. Um, But there was also caution. There was a sense from other performers who tended to work more from their own linguistic background that we didn't want to be appropriating people's voices and that there were certainly many stories of people having their voices recorded for anthropological reasons and that those sort of went into the vaults of Mm. some university library, never to be seen again. So... um, uh, I'll kind of jump to the, that phase of the process where we started to uh, try to gather some samples. Right. So we uh, hired an indigenous student mm-hmm. from Winnipeg mm-hmm. to be our research assistant. Right. And he went out into the community trying to ask people whether they would be willing to participate. Um, and we're getting participants for our focus groups. We got one in four. We got one in ten who were willing to participate in being recorded? People were much more cautious. Mm. They also weren't performers; mm-hmm. they were just people. Sure, sure. And these people really uh, didn't necessarily see the needs of a performer as being really important. Yes, and so uh, we did get some excellent samples. We right. decided to focus in on Swampy Cree because our yeah. researcher, our research assistant, uh, was from Winnipeg. His yeah. Background is Swampy Cree. He's actually creating a Swampy Cree app. Right. So he's very much rooted in the Swampy Cree community. Right. And so we were able to create some Swampy Cree resources.
0: Okay. I want to jump in there. We're almost out of time now. You've, wow. you've been doing this uh, great, great uh, conversation about, about these things. But, you know, uh, what's interesting and I want to point out is people may, I don't want people to get the wrong idea about uh, the fact that you, you mentioned Swampy Cree. That is one of many indigenous languages across the country. And I'm not sure people... And, that, and I guess that's part of that stereotypical kind of thing that people think all indigenous people speak the same language, or maybe there's only a couple. There are a huge amount of languages, and you pointed out, some very endangered. Uh, there is this great revitalization going on in many communities where they're trying to teach that. Uh, But there is also that caution that you pointed out about that, uh, about appropriating uh, not only the language, but, you know, uh, music has done this as well. There have Mm. been a number of musical pieces where indigenous music has been recorded and then turned into these great commercial hits. Right. And the people of the communities did not reap the benefit of that. And and so I think, again, you've got, got that. So you pointed that out as well. And that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so listen, quickly, Quickly, what's, what's the next steps what's you want to do with away? this? Yeah, what's the takeaway?
1: I think the takeaway is that um, the people who are training our artists need mm. to get their game up. They have mm-hmm. to learn how to, to work with these students. It may be on a one-on-one basis to mm. give them the tools to yep. go out. They may need to learn the skills to be able to analyze yep. an accent and break it down for themselves because mm. – The resources aren't available yet, and I don't know that such a database is going to ever happen. It's really a challenging thing to create. The other thing that, um, you know, people who are learning to be actors, they need to learn how to learn a language. Sure. Because that's a really big demand uh, uh, that often people are required to make it sound like they can speak a language. And what is a language? Many indigenous languages are radically different from English Mm -hmm. because they are these languages where You have a word and you develop it. You add on all these endings to create verb tenses and tenses of uh, nouns and adjectives. It's much more complicated than, say, learning uh, German. Right. So,
0: well, and you know, we never even got onto the topic of uh, uh, res slang uh, because I'm sure you got informed about that and some of the the way that uh, indigenous people speak on the res uh, uh, just in, in a contemporary way. Uh, which is a whole lot of fun in in many cases, and there's a whole lot of uh, words that have come out of uh, rice slang and stuff as well right across the country. Um, So, uh, Eric, it's been a pleasure having you here, and we really appreciate you coming on and talking to us about this today.
1: It's been my pleasure to be here today. Thank you so much. Thank you very
0: much. That's uh, Eric Armstrong. He's an associate professor in the Department of Theater at York University. My old school. It's so great to have somebody else here from York University. We always uh, always a pleasure to have some. But please do not go away. We will be right back here on Moment of Truth right after this. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 95.7 in Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto, and anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 95.7 ELMNTFM or 106.5 ELMNTFM and just follow the directions, you could be listening on your device of choice. Twenty-four hours a day, seven days a week. I'd like to welcome my next guest to the show. Uh, calling in from Saskatoon. And it's a pleasure to to have her with us here on the show. But I, I want to tell people right off the top that uh she is not the Indian you're looking for. Ruth? No, good mor- I am not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I thought that was I thought that was a very clever line that you used. Of course, uh uh, appealing to those people that are are um, uh, Star Wars uh, fans, if I'm not mistaken. Really? Yeah, because that's oh, a line. My... These are not the droids you're looking for. They use that line. These are not the droids oh. you're looking for. <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> Well, that's a happy coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah, it is. Uh, it, if an unusual one that you didn't know, but there is a tie in. So uh, Ruth hand, and she uh, is is on the line, and we appreciate you being here. Now, Ruth, as an artist, uh, it's a pleasure to have you on. You've done some really interesting things, and uh, I think that um, in in two thousand thirteen, you uh, received the Lieutenant Governor's Award Arts Award. In Saskatchewan, so congratulations yes. on that!
2: Thank
0: you. As I look over your CV, uh, it certainly does go back a ways. You've had some very, very interesting projects that you've been involved with.
2: Yes, it's been a long time,
0: too. It's been a long time. Does it feel that way? It sounds yeah. like, <laughs> <laughs> but listen, um. Most recently, I guess uh, you've you've done some really interesting things with beadwork.
2: Yes, yes, I have.
0: You can tell us about that.
2: Well, um, I was uh, I was teaching for twenty six years at First Nations University of Canada mm. on Saskatoon campus, and I had been doing um, Indigenous art history and studio classes and. Um uh there was one class that they needed to get an an uh Indian art minor and it involved bead work, so I had to teach myself how to bead and I had to figure out a way um to get the students engaged in beading without um it being um sort of like craft based like where you do a design and you do the same design over and over. Mm. So um, I was watching the Antiques Roadshow and they were talking about um, samplers that uh, young women embro- embroidered and you learn different stitches and I thought, you know, that's a good idea to do a like a sampler kind of thing, teach them different stitches, mm. but I needed a subject matter. Mm. So then I thought, well, what if they beaded a painting and then they would have to be engaged with it because the colors of the beads wouldn't match. Um, The spaces would be, you know, if you needed to use three beads instead of, you know, eight. And so you would have to be figuring in your mind all the time. And so I started that. And uh, a lot of them actually beaded um, small Norvell more so paintings, Mm. which turned out really beautiful because they have the black outline. And then I started um, trying to think of, and because I enjoyed beading, I tried to think of what I wanted to do with beading. And so one day I was looking at my beads and I was thinking about how beautiful they are, the depth of the color, the shine, and, and how Indigenous women must have just been like enthralled the first time they ever saw beads coming from. Um, porcupine quilts. Mm. So then I started thinking about trade and about how we were given beads in trade and and iron pots and knives and those things that kind of revolutionized our world. And then I was thinking of the downside of trade, which is like guns and and disease. And then I started thinking, you know, I've never looked up to see those diseases. I know I've been taught all my life that, you know, they killed us and So let's see what they were. Uh, So I found out the ones that, uh, the ten that came from the uh, old world to the new. And then I looked them up on a microscopic level. And I found these beautiful, beautiful abstracted images. And I was just like, ah, oh, my God, these are so gorgeous. And they would translate into beads so beautifully. So I started to bead them. And I wanted it to look like you were peering through a microscope. Mm-hmm. So they're round. They're about eight inches across. And when I went to frame them, I didn't want, um, like, the, the board behind to have any kind of a shine to it. I wanted it to absorb the light. So then the beads would just shine on their own. And so I um, used what's called suede board, which is it's kind of like... Um, uh, suede or velvety material. Mm-hmm. And so then um uh, what happens is the virus is sewn onto the suede board and then framed and, and man they look so so good. <laughs> I thought, oh no, they're too pretty. I need <laughs> to do something. So um uh, for the trading series I used a stencil and I stenciled the the name of the disease onto the bottom. And the stenciling is kind of uh refers to shipping. Like when they used to send um like fragile right. or, you know, the the address onto the box mm-hmm. and when they would ship something. Mm-hmm. So that's the whole deal. Y-
0: you know, uh I did have a look at some of those and they are uh fascinating to look at. And if you don't look closely you'd never know they were beaded. Um but I I hear and I see what you're talking about in terms of that fascination. It's really an interesting idea you had to take that, those, these diseases under the microscope as to what they look mm-hmm. like and transform them into the beading. Uh, on a larger scale, uh, when you think about beading, I think of also wampum, you know, and, and how wampum are a form of communication, and certainly how beading is a form of communication uh, in, in some ways, yes?
2: Yes. Uh, Some people have um, their own designs that are handed down through family. So if if you see someone who has a beaded jacket or um, beaded moccasins, sometimes you can look at and you can tell where they're from. Mm. And then sometimes if you know a lot, you can actually figure out what family they belong to.
0: Yeah, It's interesting you say that because I know um, uh, moccasins uh, in, in around this area, I know of someone who has started what's called the Moccasin uh, Trail, uh, certainly using moccasins as a way of identifying uh, the nation of people because moccasins and the way they are beaded and the way they are stitched and, and put together uh, can tell you that nation and can tell you that, uh, that, that, uh, that group of people in that specific regional area. Ah, nice um so once you did this, you say you it looked too pretty, but uh you decided to i think to turn this into a a show or at least um uh part of that it, it don't breathe, don't eat is that part of the same thing
2: Oh, don't breathe, don't drink is, um don't. I had been doing diseases for a while, and i was i was trying to uh think of uh how to push my beating a little bit. And I remember it was during Attawapiskat, mm. the, the housing crisis. Mm-hmm. And I remember on uh, CBC they were showing um, footage of um, the village and how people had tried to make houses out of tarps. Yes. And and I thought, you know, that that is such a strong image. Uh, people so desperate for housing that they're trying to make houses out of tarps. And so I developed this idea that what I was going to do was I was going to make a tablecloth out of the cheapest tarp I could find, which is those blue tarps. And on it, I was going to to bead microscopic views of black mold and have it kind of like a decorative element around the uh, sides of the tablecloth. And that... That took about two and a half years to bead because it was so boring. I mean, the first pair, you know, when you do the first two pairs and you're like, ah, that's great. Oh, I only have seven more to go. Oh. <laughs> and then each one of the round um, uh, black um, spores would take me 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. So if anybody ever wanted to do the math, they could count all the spores and they could figure out how many hours that took. mm mm-hmm. Then I had the table, and then the next thing I wanted to do, I've been thinking about this for a while, is I wanted to uh, bead a 3D um, bacterium related to boil water advisories on reserves. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd been talking to a a friend who's also an artist, and she had done a little work with resin, and so I was like, you do think this is possible, but I did glasses, filled with resin, and have a beaded uh, bacterium inside. And she said, oh, sure, <laughs> uh, we should try it. <laughs> so it took, um, what, it took three years to um, do all the glasses in the baby bottles because wow. we had so many problems with uh, air bubbles in the water, mm. in the resin, and then it didn't look like water. Um, we had a lot of breakage. Uh, finally, we kind of limped through and did the first um, iteration at uh, DC3 Art Projects in Edmonton, which had the tablecloth and the glasses and baby bottles on top. And uh, then that went to the Toronto Art Fair, where some lovely people um, who belong to, a, I can't remember the name of their groups, but they're Americans who live in Canada, and they bought the piece and donated it to the uh, Art Gallery of Ontario. Ugh. Mm. So yeah, that was pretty exciting.
0: It was, and it's quite striking. Yeah. If you if you go to see that online, uh, you can you can see that and, and see what it looks like. Um, congratulations once again on on thinking out of side the box in terms of bringing that uh, idea to try to show people um that idea of of having to uh, live in that way about uh, don't breathe as you were talking about the mold and don't uh, and don't drink yeah uh, how how was it received
2: um it was pretty exciting people just um immediately got it mm-hmm. and um uh, uh, we're really excited. There are there were people who were kinda of <laughs> who actually would put their fingers into the glasses <laughs> to see if it was water. Sure. And then they, they you know, they'd hit the resin. It's like, mm. of course it's not water. Beads can't float in water. Mm. Yeah.
0: Well yeah, go ahead. I
2: also think because it was like a table and glasses, it was so domestic that People, you know, recognized it and it wasn't like high art. It was more like, oh, yeah, glasses of water. And and so it didn't have that preciousness about it. So they kept touching it. Mm. Yeah.
0: Mm. Uh, uh, going back then to your uh, the, the, of taking the viruses and and looking at these viruses and thinking of trade, as you mentioned, about what that was like. Uh, being introduced to bead beads and then, then taking um, what these that trade brought as you pointed out, it brought diseases, it brought uh, alcohol, it brought uh, uh, other other things uh, and and then looking at those things under the microscope, getting that idea to start beating them uh, how what you can't see from looking at them really is is how how large are they?
2: They are eight inches across.
0: Okay. So they're I, like
2: a small plate. Yeah. Good, size. good yeah. size. Yeah.
0: So um when you had one completed, um what what did you think when you what did you think that that this said to you and other people when you looked at that and saw it completed?
2: Well uh first <laughs> When I first looked, like I was doing test pieces, smaller pieces, they were four inches across, Mm. and then when I started a a big one, I think the first one I finished was smallpox. And when it was done, I was like, oh, holy smoke, this is so gorgeous. This is, I don't know if people are going to like it, but I love it, and I love what I'm doing. And The really weird thing about the trading series was I applied for a grant through the Arts Board, and um, they, well, they gave me the grant, and then they wanted to purchase one, and then uh, they wanted to purchase one that I hadn't even started working on. And then the McKenzie um, uh, curator at that time, Michelle LeValley, came up to my house to have a look, and she applied for the York Wilson Award. Through Canada Council to purchase thirty thousand dollars worth of work, and it's a painting prize. But I, uh, they actually won it for my work, wow. so it was. Uh, I thought, oh my God, I've I've uh, I've hit something here.
0: Mm. I just want to jump in and let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest on the line from Saskatoon is Ruth Cuthand, and she is an artist specifically working. Uh, in this case, with uh, beating, We're talking about beating and some of the work that she has done. She's had a, a couple of uh, successful showings. One is the, the one we, we were just talking about a little bit earlier, Don't Breathe, Don't Drink. And that had to do with Attawapiskat and the conditions that were, were brought to the attention of the nation in regard to the living conditions of mold in the homes and of the boiling drinking water and the contaminants that, uh, that m- uh, many First Nations have been dealing with uh, for far, far, far too long, and uh, she brought it to life in the form of uh, actually putting, beading these uh, these these things into um, uh, cups and and baby bottles, and putting them on tables, showing the mold, etc. But all with beadwork, uh, and as we found out through uh, some very hard work that was needed to bring that to uh, to. Uh, to to fruition. And then uh, the last thing we've been talking about just now, she was just talking about uh, she's taken by looking at some of the items that were brought through trade when indigenous peop- people first met with Europeans and some of the unfortunate things that were uh, transferred back and forth through contact uh, and trade. Uh, that is uh, the viruses and some of the desi- smallpox, one of them being mentioned, as she pointed out and uh, and she she started to look at those under a microscope and saying and, and thinking that they would translate very well to beating and uh, then she brought those to life through beating um so ruth um you 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 didn't just do smallpox what were the other ones that you did
2: oh uh for the trading series um there is uh chickenpox it's like a lot of child diseases mm. chickenpox measles Um, now my mind fails me. I'm looking around trying to figure it out. Uh, there was scarlet fever.
0: Mm. (sighs) Oh, sorry, my mind failed me. No worries. (laughs) Um, now the thing you said just a minute ago, though, was that when you finish this and when you're working in the, uh, in the trial phase. And you had a small one of, of smallpox. You looked at this and you said you loved it. Now, you, yeah. you're looking at, a, at, at what a, a virus looks like that, that brought, you know, uh, some, some harm to not only indigenous people, but other people that first came in contact because there was no antibodies against these things and a way of, of, um, of dealing with it. But you saw a beauty in what you were creating as well. Why did you see that and why did you think it was important?
2: Well, uh, I saw the the beauty of the beads, Mm. and um, one thing I wanted to do was kind of change the um, the idea of a bead. Like, if I say I'm an Indigenous woman who beads, people often say, oh, do you do maugasins? And so I wanted to shift it from um, being that kind of craft is usable i wanted to change it into um art that you would hang on the walls mm. and so um and i also wanted to also like highlight the beads because ugh beads are so gorgeous so uh i think i achieved that with the uh trading series
0: mm. uh, i guess it, you know I, i'm I'm trying to think also because you're you're attracted to the beads. You like working with beads, you, and, and the way they they create something. You've you've created something that's beautiful to look at, but it's also dealing with something that is it it it, it I guess talking about a point in history. Uh, so you're sharing that uh, from this as well. So it's educational at the same time, and I guess that's something that is interesting, isn't it? Because it can translate. Something about history at the same time as looking at at something that is attracted to look at.
2: Yeah, and I also I also like the um the the push pull of the work. Like people will go, oh my goodness, look at that! Is oh that's so beautiful. Look at its beads, and you know, and then they they look at the title of the work and they see that it's actually a disease, and so mm-hmm. that kind of. Repels them. Like, mm. how could I say that was beautiful when it's right. actually ugh, a disease?
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so then, what other kind of reactions uh, have you had from people when they see that and they are first attracted to it, then realizing what it is? Uh, what kind of a teaching moment do you think it is?
2: Um. Uh. It, I think it's a it's a really interesting teaching moment because then people sort of. Um, uh, have a microscopic view of um, of a disease, and it kind of shifts their head mm. to, like, these, this isn't just abstracted shapes. This is an actual thing that, you know, is in our environment. Mm. And um, it's... Um, so it gives them a different kind of view on it. I had um, a, a woman who works in... Um, Studying viruses, and she—I did bubonic plague actually for the trading series, mm. and she looked. It, she looked at it, and she said, "You know, that is a really accurate um, depiction of uh, the bubonic plague because it's a three-walled cell, and it has the uh, the exterior of it is shiny and waxy, and it's hard to break through that to actually kill the virus." And she went on and on mm. about how bubonic plague, and so. I learned a lot, and I was like, wow, it's <laughs> accurate.
0: <laughs> well, that's really interesting, uh, and I was just going to ask you if you've had any feedback from the medical industry or someone that works within that field uh, in terms of what you've done.
2: I was actually at Health Sciences uh, at the University of Saskatchewan in the fall, and I had um, bead hives there, and so I had all kinds of, of uh, students, doctor students, um, different um, health people come come through and bead with me and and talk and I learned so much about um, disease and transmission it's like pretty amazing I loved it
0: now how are the colors are the colors accurate in terms of the way the viruses are depicted as well
2: Well, the thing that happens when you're looking through a microscope at something that small, Mm. at that level, it's all like grays and whites. Mm. Mm. So they're really boring. (laughs) But then what happens is a wonderful person called a medical artist actually goes in and colors the viruses. And and they will do it like if uh, whoever is asking them to do it, if they want to know cell walls or whatever, and then they choose colors that will depict the different um, parts of the virus. Hmm. Yeah.
0: Well, there you go. You see, you learn something new every day. (laughs) I had no idea there was something like a medical artist that would go in and color uh, (laughs) viruses at the microscopic level. Wow, that's pretty fascinating.
2: Yeah. Look at CBC and all those um, COVID-19 things behind Mm. them on the desk, and Mm. they shift and change. Somebody painted those.
0: That is fascinating stuff, Ruth. Congratulations. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, listen, what do you have coming up in the future? Uh, what's What's on your uh, plate, so to speak?
2: Oh, well, I'm in quite a few group shows this year. Mm-hmm. And of course, do you know I won the Governor General's Award for Visual Arts? Yes.
0: Congratulations.
2: Thank you there is going to be a group exhibition at the Art Gallery of Alberta in July and the um, actually they're going to have the ceremony in Edmonton Mm -hmm. and then open the show so um, Julie Payette will come out and do the ceremony and then she'll open the show Mm
1: -hmm.
2: and in the fall I have a show at the um, college galleries at the University of Saskatchewan and that's going to be new work. And I'm working on um, I'm working on mental health, so I'm actually beating uh, brain scans of people with different uh, mental health conditions.
0: Wow!
2: And I'm working on a, a series, of course, about COVID nineteen.
0: Oh, of course. Now, of course. now, with the one that you're working on that you just mentioned about uh, the brain scans, uh, will that be sort of will that be three dimensional?
2: I w you know, I wanted to do that and I'm still trying to figure out uh how wow. to be get something that you can beat a three dimensional brain. That's where yeah. I'm kinda of stuck right now. But sure. so I'm doing like MRI scans, the they're just two dimensional.
0: Yes. yes. Right. Um, uh, Ruth, and thank you for mentioning about the governor governor general's awards, uh, because that was the one thing that was missing from the top of my list here. I was looking for that, and I I know, it, I, know I know it's there. Where is it? But I, I don't have it in my printout. <laughs> so thank you. That was the governor general awards for twenty twenty for the for visuals. Is that we said called it.
2: Yes, visual arts.
0: Yes. Yes, and that's going to be uh, awarded to you when uh,
2: July second in Edmonton.
0: All right. Well, yes, thank you for mentioning that and I apologize for not having that with uh with the information that was here in my printout. Okay. Um Ruth, uh, that about wraps up our time though. So, um I it was really fascinating speaking with you. Thank you so much for talking to us.
2: Okay. You're welcome.
0: And congratulations once again for the Governor General's Award for 2020 for visuals and uh and, uh, yeah, and all the many other things that you're going to bring forward to us in the world of beating. Who knew?
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Thanks again, Ruth. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Okay. Bye. All right. Take care. That is Ruth And she is uh, the winner of the Governor General's Award for 2020 uh, visuals. And that will be presented to her in July of this year. So congratulations to her. And if you want to look her up online, please do so. uh, Because you're going to see some fascinating stuff. Uh, Ruth Cut Hand, and uh, her especially uh, Don't Breathe, Don't Drink. And as we also talked about her virus series, uh, the disease series uh, that you can see with uh, taking that microscopic... Uh, stuff and, and seeing what she did with it with beating. It's fascinating. Please check it out. That's our show for today. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time here on Moment of Truth. I also want to say Nyawa, Miigwech, Wanishi, and thank you to everyone who helps put Moment of Truth together. They include in Ottawa, Jill Kennedy, and Caroline O'Neill. In Toronto, Andrew Johnson, Luca Capone, Kathy Zabokin, Andrew St. Germain. Nyawa, Migwech, and thanks for listening.